0: In the early days of the American Revolution, British commanders worried a lot more about Charles Lee than they did about George Washington. In December 1776, after the Continental Army's retreat from New York, and with Washington's army crossing and recrossing the Delaware River, and General Charles Cornwallis' army within striking distance of the American capital of Philadelphia, the British were as concerned about Lee's whereabouts as Washington was. The American commander-in-chief had sent dozens of letters and four officers on horseback, to find Charles Lee and get him to bring his army to meet up with Washington to stop an expected British advance on Philadelphia. Charles didn't think the British intended to strike the capital, even though politically it was a good move. So he didn't move, or at least move too slowly. The Congress sure thought the British were coming, and they evacuated to Baltimore, some of the delegates believing that Charles and his army would swoop in and save them at the last minute. Not Washington and his army, by the way. The British, for their part, saw Charles everywhere they looked. He was given credit for guerrilla attacks on their supply lines, which were likely done by local militias, and General Cornwallis was nervous that Lee could potentially be on his flank or his rear with a sizable force. So Cornwallis ordered the 16th Regiment of Light Dragoons, which Charles had commanded while serving with the British Army in Portugal a dozen years before, to go find Lee and his army. On December 13, 1776, his old pals found him. Charles was staying at the Widow White's Tavern in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. He only had a few aides with him. The rest of his army was miles away. He spent his time, not surprisingly, complaining about his superiors. I mean, superior. He wrote General Horatio Gates, A certain great man is most damnably deficient. He has thrown me into a situation where I have my choice of difficulties. If I stay in this province, New Jersey, I risk myself and my army... And if I do not stay, the province is lost forever. I have neither guides, cavalry, medicine, money, shoes, or stockings. I must act with the greatest circumspection. Tories are in my front, rear, and on my flanks. So great was his angst that Lee abandoned the use of commas in this letter. The list of woe was one big run on sentence. His front, rear, and flanks weren't as much an immediate concern as, say, the front door of the tavern where he was staying, because his old regiment, I'd come to call. The dragoons sent by General Cornwallis to find Lee's army encountered an American deserter who told them where the army was, and that its general was staying at the Widow White's tavern with few guards, and not even any dogs to alert him to danger, if his dogs would even do such a thing. Mine certainly don't, but there isn't a regiment of enemy cavalry on its way to capture me and send me into confinement on a British prison ship, as far as I know. 22-year-old Cornet Bannister Tarleton, who would later gain notoriety for his part in the capture of Charleston and the massacre of American soldiers after they surrendered, led the way to the tavern. The Americans later in the war adopted the phrase Tarleton's Quarter, which consisted of being shot after surrendering. Tarleton's detachment surprised Lee's few bodyguards who surrendered, hopefully without being subsequently shot to death. Tarleton fired twice through the front door of the tavern and ordered his men to shoot through every door and window. When the gunfire stopped. Tarleton called out, if the general does not surrender in five minutes, I will set fire to the house and every person without exception would be put to the sword. Charles pondered his reply. The widow White, the tavern's proprietor, begged Tarleton not to destroy her inn. Some of Lee's guards were shot trying to flee out a back door. The commander of the dragoons, Lieutenant Colonel Harcourt, arrived. Charles directed his aide to tell the colonel he would surrender to him. It didn't take Charles long to figure out that surrendering to Tarleton wasn't the best idea. Charles came to the door without a coat or hat, wearing his slippers and a shirt that hadn't been washed in days. He surrendered his sword and asked to be treated as a gentleman. He was put on a horse with his legs tied to the stirrups and taken 25 miles to Somerset Courthouse, where he met the American deserter who had betrayed him. Charles verbally abused him as a villain worthy of the punishment of the most base and inhuman traitor. Charles was eventually handed over to General Cornwallis, who ordered him detained in New Brunswick. Cornet Tarleton was the hero of the hour. His aggressiveness in capturing Lee sealed his relationship with Cornwallis, which led to his eventual rampages through the Carolinas, where he executed American soldiers who believed waving a white flag would keep them from being killed and that warfare had rules. Tarleton wrote his mother that the capture of General Lee would mean an end to the revolution, which was an opinion shared by most of the British high command, as well as General Sullivan, Lee's second-in-command. Sullivan sent a rescue party, but it was too late. Henry Knox wrote his wife Lucy that the loss of Lee was a severe blow. Nathaniel Green wrote that Lee's capture was a great loss to the American states. A Pennsylvania general said that Lee's capture was a misfortune that cannot be remedied, as we have no officer in the Army of equal experience and merit. Speaking of which, where was George Washington right about now? And what exactly was he up to upon hearing the news of lee's capture he publicly proclaimed i sincerely regret general lee's unhappy fate and feel much for the loss of my country in his captivity privately he wrote to his cousin lund at mount vernon our cause has received a severe blow in the captivity of general lee unhappy man taken by his own imprudence george was too much of a proper gentleman to say i told you so but if General Lee had followed Washington's orders and moved his army with haste as directed, he would not now be cooling his heels in British custody with the attendant blow to American morale. A correspondent of Mercy Otis Warren wrote that she hated to think that the fate of America hangs on the prowess of a single person. Phyllis Wheatley wrote a poem on the capture of General Lee in an attempt to inspire the troops. Charles was portrayed as a man betrayed by a friend into British hands, which wasn't exactly what happened, but some poetic license needed to be taken in order to keep everyone's spirits up. It was an uphill battle. Members of the Continental Congress wrung their hands in dismay. Robert Morris wrote that his abilities had frequently been immensely useful. The want of them will be severely felt. Benjamin Rush wrote that since Lee's capture, distrust has crept in among the troops of the abilities of some of our general officers high in command. They expect nothing now from heaven-taught and book-taught generals. Speaking of which, Where was George Washington right about now, and what exactly was he up to? Washington had been planning a Christmas present for the British for some time. The loss of New York put him in a bind, both from a military and public relations sense. The capture of Charles Lee only underscored the importance of a military victory, and soon. The talk up and down the line after Lee's capture, on both sides, was that the cause was lost and all that was left to do was surrender and prepare America next to be stretched in London. Good news, though. With Lee out of the way, Washington got his army back together as he had been asking for weeks. On Christmas Day, Washington crossed the Delaware like some kind of badass Santa Claus and dropped his metaphorical present down the metaphorical Hessian chimney at Trenton, New Jersey, where a surprise attack routed the garrison. He followed it up with another victory against Cornwallis' army at Princeton on January 3rd. And Cornwallis had been worried about Charles Lee. Interesting. All of a sudden, the capture of cranky, obstinate, canine, obsessed General Lee didn't seem like the moral blow to the cause everyone thought it was. William Whipple, a congressional delegate from New Hampshire, wrote, General Lee is taken. This is a loss to us, but I hope not so great a loss as people in general imagine. Samuel Adams said that Washington's victory at Trenton convinced the British that as great as Lee's abilities are, we can beat them without him. The British were not convinced. General Lee's capture was celebrated throughout Britain. General Lord Howe's adjutant called Lee the only rebel general whom we had cause to fear. The English believed the war would soon be over. We'll just have to see about that. Charles Lee was in a literal and legal bind. General Lord Howe wanted Charles tried as a traitor and executed, since he was technically still on half pay in the British Army at the time he joined the American cause. He had sent a letter of resignation upon his appointment as the Continental Second-in-Command but Lord Howe couldn't seem to find it. How convenient. Quite a lot of his former compatriots would have been happy to see him condemned as a traitor and hanged. Charles himself expected a prisoner exchange that would return him to the American side, which was a fairly common practice in the 18th century. There were a couple of problems with this idea. The Americans didn't have a British general of comparable rank in their custody, and the English high command didn't want a commander of Lee's perceived abilities back in action fighting against them. Despite Washington's twin Yuletide surprise victories, the British still weren't scared of him. The Continental Congress wasn't persuaded either. They still loved Charles Lee and directed Washington to inquire if the British were treating their highest-ranking prisoner properly. They even allocated a sum of money to be sent to Charles for his use while in custody. Washington argued that Congress should be concerned for the proper treatment of all prisoners in British hands, not just this one. Charles was moved to New York, where he was allowed up to six visitors for dinner and comfortable quarters. He eventually got back his personal servant and his dog Spado to keep him company. While thousands of American prisoners were dying of malnutrition and disease, Charles was doing all right. He sent word to Congress that he would be willing to broker peace negotiations between the Americans and the British and asked that a congressional delegation be sent to him to get the process started. Congress refused, remembering what happened the last time the British offered terms, when Ben Franklin and John Adams had come back empty-handed. Peace negotiations, or even the pretense of them, was bad for American morale, stalled for time, and made the colonists think that Congress wasn't fully committed to independence and victory. Charles himself, earlier in the war, had refused any notion of negotiations with the enemy, but changed his tune now that he was a prisoner. Congress held firm, though, so Charles's only hope was that a British officer of sufficient seniority fell into American hands that he could be traded for. Feeling abandoned, Charles wrote up an attack plan for the British that they could use to bring a quick end to the war. He proposed an attack from Canada to seal up the rest of New York and threaten New England, as well as sending armies to take Philadelphia, Alexandria, Virginia, and Annapolis, Maryland, which would cut the northern colonies off from the southern and capture a number of nice ports. He told Howe that the war would end in less than two months from the date that the first British troops arrived in the Chesapeake, unless France and Spain entered the conflict and hostilities broke out in Europe. Howe didn't take Charles's plan seriously, and it was shelved, discovered in the mid-19th century by historians going through House papers. Charles was bitter and alone, except for his dog, his servant, and his daily dinner guests, and felt the American cause was lost without him anyway. He was looking for a safe landing for himself after the British won. Once again, the Americans surprised him. Major William Barton of the Rhode Island Militia believed it was essential to get Charles back, and there was a high-ranking British general right there in his backyard. So Major Burton and his soldiers captured Major General Richard Prescott in what was called the Outstanding Special Operation of the Revolutionary War, which still ranks as one of the greatest in military history. It's such a good story that I will do a special Patreon episode about it, so stay tuned. Charles Lee was eventually traded for General Prescott over Lord Howe's objections and delays. He still didn't want Lee facing him in battle. Charles was brought to Valley Forge, where he received a warm welcome. He had brought his dogs and his new mistress with him, who was described as a miserable, dirty hussy. The pair's nighttime activities caused Lee to be late for morning meetings of the Continental command staff. Charles once again argued for a war of irregulars and militias to harass the British and make them give up after a protracted guerrilla war, which they were not good at. Washington and his advisors, including Colonel Alexander Hamilton, favored the use of a national army. The arrival at Valley Forge of drillmaster extraordinaire Baron von Steuben had improved the skill of the troops, which Charles refused to acknowledge. He hadn't revised his opinion of Washington either, despite the commander-in-chiefs being almost universally revered after his recent victories and his sharing of his soldiers' sufferings at Valley Forge. Charles said that Washington was not fit to command a sergeant's guard. His enduring low opinion of Washington was shared by a few in Congress, which will become a problem in a future episode. Charles still had allies in the Congress who may have thought him a better choice to lead the army, but with Washington proving he could win against the British, von Steuben's profane boot camp at Valley Forge, the American victory at Saratoga by General Horatio Gates, and the entry of the French into the war, Charles seemed far less essential. His mannerisms and orderiness didn't help his cause. He went to Congress to present his ideas on tactics, but encountered a lukewarm reception, especially when he lobbied for a promotion to lieutenant general equal to Washington's rank. His return to the main army was a bit of a letdown as well. His military knowledge was still held in high regard, but his contrarian nature, his churlish behavior, his inflated ego, and the time he had spent away from the army had created doubts about his abilities and motives. Congress had ordered Washington to administer an oath of loyalty to his officers, which Charles initially refused to take. He said he opposed King George III but supported his son, the Prince of Wales, a common sentiment in England at the time. This statement reminded everyone that Charles was still technically an English citizen. Charles complained about von Steuben's training methods and claimed the army was not ready for offensive operations against the British. He recommended that Washington only use the army to stay on the defensive. George had learned that taking the fight to the enemy, when appropriate, was key to keeping the support of the colonists, the Congress, and the army. As a political general, he knew morale was as important as muskets. He asked Lee to communicate his sentiments upon any important subject relative to the service directly to him. Washington said that the custom, which many officers have of speaking freely of things and reprobating measures, is never productive of good, but often of very mischievous consequences. This would have been a great time for Charles to take the hint, but taking hints wasn't really his specialty. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a good rating on Apple Podcasts and whatever platform you listen on, as well as supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some free bonus episodes that don't quite fit with our main narrative. It's also a great way to keep the show going. A dollar a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash histories train wrecks and thank you so much. If you have your own ideas about how to avoid being captured by your old army buddies, or the best way to pass the time as a prisoner of war, you can Twitter to at History's Train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to History's Wrecks. If there is a historical train wreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the History's Wrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, Charles Lee is once again handed a prime opportunity to redeem himself and get himself back in everyone's good graces at the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse in the summer of 1778. If you've been following our story, you might not be so optimistic about his odds. We'll wrap up the story of General Charles Lee and dig into what makes him such a big train wreck. You know, as we do. Stay tuned for The Men Who Would Be Washington, Part 8 hello great minds mr dgmh here but wait what the hell is dgmh dgmh or drinks with great minds in history is a weekly podcast that covers one of history's greatest minds each month while we enjoy review and rate themed cocktails liquors and beers on the scale of greatness as greats like Alexander Hamilton square off against George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and more, DGMH is the perfect cocktail of history, sarcasm, and alcohol, with a twist of psych and a bunch of shots along the way. So grab yourself a drink with some great minds in history. Cheers! Cheers!